And that's why you should never eat a restaurant meal that arrives late. You're recording now, aren't you? 50 episodes. Who would have thought it possible? Clearly these two gents have a lot to say. I've listened to every single one multiple times and I feel thoroughly informed on these RPG things they discuss. Every show is a fact-filled, fun-times rollercoaster that you just can't get off and might, just might, make you vomit. So here's to two stalwarts of the gamer community. Who knows what we would do without your wisdom. Here's to Evil Garth and Brian. What would the smarty pants do? Thanks G2. On with the show! Hey everybody, welcome back. It's the Smart Party. We're here again to discuss what would the Smart Party do. We've done it 49 times before. And we're going to do it for a 50th time. Guys, somehow we've made it to the 50th podcast. Can you believe it? Have we not run out of things to discuss? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But we are a, a bottomless pit of useless RPG trivia and interesting facts, I believe. <laughs> In fact, with the one or two episodes that we've lost along the way, we've probably done 51 or 52 by now, but officially yeah. this is the 50th. I'm, I'm quite excited. Fifty. Uh, well, uh, the mysterious episode 11, I think, is still absent without leave and only available to people who back us at the $100 level. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct, yeah. <laughs> So there's that. But I think we've done some actual plays and some stuff along the way. So there's probably more than 50. But either way, that that's a bit of a milestone. I, I'm, I'm amazed, mate. Amazed. But really, really delighted that that we're still going. And we're kind of going because people want us to. And people are listening to the stuff we have to say, which is a constant source of amazement. Both our listeners get in touch regularly and say, please carry on, lads. So, you know, so massive shout out to those. And definitely to the people who um, who put their money where their ears are. And uh, and drop us a couple of dollars every month on Patreon. Um, you know, thank you so much to those guys, and special shout out coming your way. So thanks very much to you guys. That's our good friends Dan Sell, the Magus, Chris McDowell, Paul and Phil, Stephen, Mister Newt, Alina, Boy Band Simon, the special G two, Doctor Mitch, Jules and Sue, JFS, Shane, and Gabrielle. Thanks ever so much, guys. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! But um, I guess, yeah, 50 episodes in and it's and it's on with the show. So um, we've got a... Uh, We've got a bit of an idea to take everybody right back to the beginnings, not of what would the smart party do, but way, way, way back. And um, we've been asked to sort of talk about, like, you know, how we got into gaming in the first place. And and then we could follow that up with, like, some stuff we've been doing recently and see if, if the last 30 or is it now 40 years have taught us anything about role-playing games and gaming. So 
So let's see. So uh, you ready to step back into the old TARDIS, mate, and uh, go back through the mists of time, back to when was it the young Gaz got his hands on a D4 and picked up a pole arm? Well, careful, everybody, because we've got to go back into black and white so you won't see anything in colour. Um, <laughs> and it's an analogue dial to tune in. There's no <laughs> pressing auto-tune on your TV or anything like that. Yeah, years and years ago, in fact, when I was 10, I was at primary school. Um, blimey, yeah. 35 years ago or something, shall we say, something in that region. Um, mm. And it was uh, at lunch breaks or things like that, or uh, free game time when you had such a thing. They should have that at work now, actually. Uh, I used to play drafts, and it was the sort of school where uh, we couldn't afford drafts. So you had the draft board, and then people had to bring in toothpaste caps of two different colours. And when we had enough, you could like <laughs> set up another two people playing drafts and that sort of thing. So we made a lot of our own entertainment. There was a wall... I remember on the playground, the, the wall was the most exciting feature there was. So hardly, you know, hardly fights over the wall and who got to sit on top of it were had. Um, but enough of my poor Northwestern upbringing and barely having <laughs> two, <prison> break. <laughs> two throwers to shut together. Um, yeah, so uh, it seemed to be sponsored by other people's brothers getting people into stuff for me. So um, in particular, that those uh, heady days of being 10 years old. Uh, a guy called Paul Jones, his older brother, whose name I can't remember, uh, was into games and stuff like that, and he made his own little ones up. Um, like He called them adventure games, but it was sort of like dungeoneering, uh, and he'd have stuff written down and then like sellotape other bits of paper over the top of it. So when you went into, I don't know, the barracks or something, there was, was sort of like barracks one to eight, and you as a player chose which one you were going to go into, and then you got to lift up the flap a bit like an advent calendar to find out nice. what's behind it. And it could be 50 gold pieces or it could be 10 orcs. And, you know, one was preferable to the other, obviously. <laughs> but it was all like that and he'd handcrafted this whole thing. So that that was a, a beautiful start to it. And then a little bit later on, um, Paul actually brought in uh, X1, Isle of Dread. And we, we started okay. to play D&D &D and exploring this island with dinosaurs and stuff, which was great. He had a little bit of a hiccup at the start because he brought this thing in and said, my brother says this says we should play it. Right, you're going to run it and give it to me. So bear in mind, I've not, <laughs> not got any of the D&D books. Never mind like the basic. And it was an expert adventure, so I had no idea what I was doing. So it, it quickly rolled to me and said, oh, God, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to take control. I was like, very glad of that. I said, thanks very much. <laughs> but that was it. So, yeah, I went straight from a homegrown adventure to X1 Isle of Dread without even having the rule books. And then it was off down to the Mercer's sort of hardware store on Northgate and Blackburn, which sold all kinds of things from iron railings to, I don't know, pots of paint to numbers for your door. And also it happened, Games Workshop stuff and the odd copy of Tunnels and Trolls or D&D. So you weren't put off at all by the notion of running an expert adventure as your first one? Because I can picture the young guys going, yeah, fair enough, I'm up for that. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much <laughs> Yeah. Why would I play basic if there's a choice of basic and expert? <laughs> Just as well, I didn't know there was masters or anything like that. Yeah, no, as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it sold to me at the time. It was like we're going to play this thing, you know, this big island. There's like cat people and dinosaurs and stuff, and it's like, yes, please. Right? Mm -hmm. How do I get we're involved with this kind of stuff? <laughs> and the cool. Rakasha, they called, aren't they? The the cat things that have these metal claws they could put over the top and stuff. And yeah, I just remember right. cool little bits about. Which I don't know, perhaps we've lost a bit on adventures now, or maybe it's just my hazy memory over decades. But the bits I can remember about this was like an abandoned temple or something, or a ruined temple. And but there's like villages or people around it. 
and they were mm. like savages. They like were perfectly happy to be killed for the hit points, sort of thing. But to to our young minds, it's like it made sense that someone lived here, and it was like they're all God's temple or something, and we were interfering by going and looking at it. Do you know? What? There seemed to be a justification. Yeah. That might not be written down. That might be all part of the craft of the GM or just what we imagine with our young tender minds. But I also remember a bit where there's um, part of the temple submerged. There's a shock swimming about in this submerged region and things like that. It just seems really. I'd probably spoil it to go back and read it again now, but I can remember lots of good distinctive bits like that about it. it was just like that's a cool idea. I want to do that, please. That's good gaming. Yeah, I looked at X One recently. It's um, like with a lot of those things. There's there's not much to it. And I think one of the things I love about those old games is they are very much a product of the gaming group that played them. So everybody had, in some ways, a unique experience because your X1 journey wouldn't have been like mine, except that it's also a really common thing that loads of people played it. So it was it's like a touchstone for all gamers to say, you know, do, keep on the borderlands. What did you get out of that? How did you get through the Isle of Dread or the Tomb of Horrors or... If you're into RuneQuest, you went down that road, it might be Apple Lane and Gringle's Pawn Shop or whatever it was. Yeah. So it was kind of cool that almost everybody had had a go at some of those famous adventures and scenarios, but come out of that journey a completely different way. I don't remember a shark, but you know, <laughs> but I do remember the cat people. Yeah. And that's weird, isn't it? And we that may it may have been my party turned left when yours turned right. Yeah. But but we were both in in the early eighties at other ends of the country adventuring across this jungle with a volcano in the middle and little hexes to fill in. And that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. but and, and then equally, there were bits that still make no sense to me now. Probably would if I went back and read it all, but there was a map and it was like hexes of how, how the distance, but the map was like Isle of Dread down in this bottom corner and then everything else in the world was near the top and then loads of blue <laughs> space where it was just sea. I was like, well, that, how useless is this map? Why don't, why don't you say it's like 300 miles away? the end because there's nothing in between there's nothing on the way or <laughs> I don't understand why I've got uh, this map yeah fill it in yourself hi guys Ian Kelser here from the Giant Brain and your expert Blades GM thanks very much for that compliment on your last podcast just like to say congratulations for your 50th episode and remember however you roll your dice there are always consequences <laughs> so how did, how did you start out then Baz what was your uh, first experience it was all a mistake. Yeah, well, mine was just a mistake, an honest one. But, you know, that, that accounts for a lot of my life. So um, as as a really young lad uh, at primary school up to the age of about 10, um, this was in the 70s. Uh, so, you know, never mind your colour TV. We didn't have TV. <laughs> and it wasn't on during the day. So it was all a massive summer holiday, wasn't it? The, the, the summer holidays went on for about 15 months in <laughs> yeah. a year. And in one month it didn't happen. It was snowing in Christmas. <laughs> So that's all I remember. But we were just, we played outside. And me and all my mates in our street used to run around in what was essentially a bunch of fields. And there was a Victorian rubbish dump behind our house, which is about as good as it gets when you're like seven or eight years old. And health and safety hadn't been invented. So we were encouraged to eat our breakfast, leave the house and come back if it got dark. (laughs) And to go and spend spend those intervening 12 hours um, with no mobile phones in a place that was literally full of broken glass <laughs> and old fridges. So, Same here, mate. <laughs> yeah. 
And and the beauty is that I think I think this is true of, of a certain generation as well. Our idea of what we did, I think in all the American role-playing books that I've read, they always liken role-playing games to playing cops and robbers. We never played cops and robbers. We played war. <laughs> we played, you know, Jerry's against against the Hun. That that's what we did. Um Tommy's against Jerry's. So we we played uh, World War Two and we were commandos and we made sten guns out of sticks. And we were like ambushing each other, and there was half tracks and got in Himmel and stuff like that. <laughs> All so the Commando comics. We played soldiers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and that's what our comics were like as well. So we didn't really have superhero comics, did we? We had Battle and Commando and Warlord and things like that. So, so those were our kind of our, our pretend make believe games for which there were no rules whatsoever, and it was all you dead and that kind of thing. So, I remember loving those games, and we had um, battlements and and dens and various little bases in all the in amongst all the rubbish. So fast forward a couple of years and we end up at senior school. And in the first year of senior school, I remember distinctly that we were put into our classes and we had maybe, if we were lucky, a couple of mates from primary school were in each class with us. And I was I was sequestered with like two mates who'd played war with me. And uh, in the very first week, it was announced that we should sign up for clubs. And these were like your after school activity sort of thing. And I signed up for two clubs, uh, one of which was snooker, which was a really, really big thing in 1980, I think. It was like, you know, that was huge snooker. And it still is, but it was a really big deal. And and um, so and, and I quite like playing snooker. I was rubbish at it, but I thought snooker club sounds great. Little was I to know that it just meant going to a physics room where someone had put down a snooker table and you were to play it. And if no one else was there, you were on your own. <laughs> so me and my mate played snooker. Which, anyway, that was fine. So that was one mistake. And the other thing I signed up for was War Games Club. Right. Because that this was obviously being done by the older lads, because um, girls didn't exist at the age of 11. And it would be like, you know, war as we knew it, but done properly. So they'd have like, I don't know, maybe they had like you know, grenades <laughs> and bayonets and <laughs> stuff like that. Perhaps like an old half track <laughs> that we could play in. And... It was um it was billed as being in the history room, so I thought, oh good, there might be you know, there might be pictures of like um uh, uh, American uh, navy planes, yeah. that kind of stuff. Maybe we could broaden our horizons to play in the Pacific or something like that, and storm beaches and shout tora tora tora. So that was that was my impression. I genuinely remember speaking to my mate Nick and wondering if I should bring my best stick. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was less naive and innocent than me, and he suggested that I shouldn't do that because they would no doubt have their own sticks Clearly. that would be official, so <laughs> and yeah, higher quality. Fine. Yeah, yeah. And I also remember wondering, like, you know, would we lose anything from moving from outdoors to the history room? But again, I was fairly certain that you know they would push over some tables and rearrange some chairs and make some bunkers. So imagine my surprise. <laughs> When I walk into the history room, push open the door, expecting to be greeted with like, you know, a friend or foe, hands up, give the password, and instead got slapped in the chest with what I later found out was a player's handbook and told if I wanted to play a game, I should read that and roll up a character. So that was unusual because as far as I could see, nobody was lobbing grenades at anyone. Um... And no one was getting killed, nobody was surrendering, and no one was pretending to have not been shot. Instead, there were some slightly greasy lads, all older than me, who looked like they were studying for an exam. 
uh, and because they were all bent over tables. <laughs> Lots of paperwork everywhere, yeah. Yeah, paperwork scattered everywhere. Charts, I remember seeing charts. Someone had one of those scientific calculators that was the size of a tea tray. And um, uh, there was graph paper, which I'd only ever seen in maths books before. And um, at the end of each table, there was two tables I distinctly remember, was someone behind um, screens made out of Weetabix boxes. So the whole thing just looked utterly bizarre. It was like some kind of study group. But anyway, I, I took my player's handbook, sat down, got some paper out and a pencil. And my first introduction to role playing was sitting alone with the player's handbook where I dutifully read enough pages and rolled enough dice and wrote on my sheet. And I generated a character from scratch on my own. Wow. And it must have taken, I don't know how long it took, but it must have taken some time because when I went back to the table, the game was in full swing and the bloke behind the Weetabix packet looked up and said, okay, what have you got? And I looked at my sheet and read out loud a word I'd never said out loud before, which was, I've got a paladin. <laughs> and and I remember pretty much the groan that went round the table and somebody actually threw some dice at me because like paladins were apparently an awful thing to bring to a game but all I knew was that I'd magically rolled a 17 for my charisma and I thought that seems to be like really hard to do so I can now be a palander because you had to have 17 charisma yeah and rolling out on 3d6 in order is no mean feat I was feeling quite smug I had no idea what a paladin was but still anyway so I was actually not allowed to play in that game because I was a paladin and I got ushered off to the other table which was running a game which seemed a lot looser and a lot more kind of well I suppose fun (laughs) <laughs> and I was actually given a character. <laughs> um, and uh, the game was Tunnels and Trolls. I was given a hobbit called Willow. And roughly six minutes later, I'd been buggered to death by black hobbits. So that was nice. <laughs> and that was the end of my first session. And I went home wondering what had happened to war. But a whole new vista of experiences had opened up to the young bats. And you thought you'd go back for more anyway. <laughs> of course. It was British. I'd already said I'd go. So I couldn't not go, could I? And I couldn't, up for it was too weeks. early to text in and say, I'm sick tonight. <laughs> you had to write a formal letter, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had to get one from my mum. Hello, Baz and Gaz. Hello, listeners. Remember me? It's Paul Michener here. So I was there on the history podcast. Anyway, I just wanted to give you this message to say congratulations on reaching number 50. That is one heck of an achievement. And, you know, I'd love to come back as a guest sometime. I promise next time not to eat my dinner over the call. Anyway, have fun with this podcast and, you know, Play some incredibly good and great games. Okay, bye. Now, I remember just walking home thinking this was the, the most incredible stuff ever. I had no idea what it was. It looked really intimidating, but also really you know, scary and appealing in equal measure. It, these, were, these were lads I kind of immediately looked up to, started hero-worshipping them straight away. And, and in between the bits of the games, when I was talking to them about what it was, you know, they said, this is the new thing, and these are games that that never end, they'll play for years and years and years. I'd never been handed such a big rule book in my life. Like my previous ex- experience of rule books had been ignoring the Monopoly pamphlet, like we all did. Yeah. Maybe the Cluedo one. Um, and the idea of like there was no board. And those things, even now, still massively, massively appeal to me. The idea of a game of the imagination, you play someone else, there's a GM, 
and the game goes on forever, they are still the things I love about gaming. And they, they have never left me um, because they still seem to me to be like the unique selling points of role-playing games. Yeah. And it, and it just hooked me straight away. And I remember nothing about the adventures, unlike yourself. I just remember the possibilities. Hi, gents. This is Stephen. Congratulations on your 50th episode. Keep up the great work. It's still part of it and flavors my gaming to an extent to this day. Um, it's that kind of unknown. And quite often now, because we're older and wiser, or certainly older. Older, there's, yeah. Yeah, there's the kind of... Um, I, I think we've mentioned it before, but I kind of want that smoke screen to be there, that... Whoever it is that's controlling the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain, I want him to stay behind the curtain kind of thing. Mm. So there's probably more I know now. Well, there should definitely be more I know now than when I was 10. But like back then, anything, and you know, someone can say anything to me. I just have to take it as that's what it is. Yeah. Whereas now I probably know a bit more of the, the levers that are being pulled or I can say the schematics of the, the whole device or you know what I mean. And I can say certain intonations of the way things are played out to guess what's going on. But I still like not knowing. So I still prefer those sort of games, actually, where things are a little bit hidden from you as a player and you discover stuff, like reading mm-hmm. a book for the first time or whatever else it is. I know there are some games these days that are more geared out to it's open, everybody's involved, uh, stuff just comes out as a bit of track you lay before you and, and we're all involved in and say whether it's right or wrong and should be there. But I don't know whether it's still trying to capture that magic of my youth or whether it's just something I just genuinely like, but I prefer there to be at least an element of I don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, I think that's one of the magic bits about that sort of, well, the games in general, really. Yeah, I, I have I have very similar. And um, it's a rare game these days that, that deliberately sets out to achieve this. But the, my overriding love of those early games was exploration. That idea of, uh, of pushing, pushing the boundaries, like turning the corner, opening the door, um, walking across the city, mapping another hex. Not so much mapping stuff, but just exploring, just poking things to see what response I would get. And I never knew what that response was going to be. And because this was like, you know, early days of gaming, very often that response could be lethal, mm-hmm. um, which was, but uh, it, was that part of the fun? I don't know. It added a certain frisson. Um, I never really lost a character that was too high a level because, well, we never really got to high levels. I think in the first few years of playing, I never got above fifth level in AD&D. Um, mm-hmm. And I used to spend hours filling out the character sheets. But yeah, you could die to a single dice roll. But you had to go and look. And you had to poke things and find out stuff. And I never, ever knew what was behind the GM screen. And I always wanted to know. And at the earliest opportunity, I got behind the GM screen and realized that actually there was nothing like what came across the screen. That translation of the Isle of Dread or the GM's own stuff or the bit of graph paper or... You know, I, I, I once saw a game run where the map was based on the person's house that we were sitting in, but the way it was described and the way we, we sketched it out, you wouldn't have known that until afterwards. Yeah. So that, you know, that feeling of like, where do you get your ideas from? And when they do the reveal, it was almost like a bit, oh, actually, that seems really mundane. I, I kind of don't want the reveal. I want you to just keep the smoke screen going. I a little bit mystique. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think they call it illusionism now which means mine have been shattered. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Baz and Gaz. This is Ralph from the Fixed Pleasant Podcast. Congrats on hitting your 50th. 
I've been a fan since the first episode, and seeing you do your thing has been an inspiration to us. Looking forward to the hundredth episode. Take care. Bye. Yeah, there's um, and, and part of that's the art of jamming as well, isn't it? Like, I know we've, we've probably discussed before the uh, the Delta Green that you and Simon played uh, at Jaincon, mm. and there was a guy there who we've never seen before or since called Adam. If you were called Adam, you you were at yes. Jaincon in uh, London, and you Jim Delta Green. Let us know because you were great. Um, but the, I got hold of the actual scenario for that afterwards because of all the reviews that everybody uh, had given me. But the scenario has nothing in it. It's bizarre. Mm. Um, and then equally, I've been to you know in some games where I've seen really good scenarios, but the experience I had was suboptimal at the table. So you know, a good chunk of this stuff does come down to the craft of a GM as much as this you know GMless games and everybody's a player on the table, etc. These days, and we buy mm. into a, a certain amount of that. I think there's still a a good skill in being a gem and that makes you a better player and gives you extra sort of abilities once you've seen what it's like on the far side of that gem screen how how did you first get into actually running a game then Baz what was what was your entry yeah, well, point that, that was yeah that, that was well it was really quick it didn't take very long at all because I think I ended up running games for my pals the pals I used to play war with pretty quickly after that once I thought I'd got enough to figure out how it worked because from the player's side, starting as a player, one of the things I loved about it was you didn't need anybody to explain it. In fact, it was really difficult to explain role-playing games, and it still is to people who've never done it. It's really difficult to explain, but it's really easy to experience because all of those early games, it's still true of games now to a greater or lesser extent, but you basically imagined what you would do in that situation and said it out loud. And then your DM or GM would pass that into the rules, interpret it, and feed back to you. They would tell you, if you needed to roll dice, they would say, roll that dice. It's a, it's the eight-sided one. No, not that one, the eight-sided one. Um, and you, it, it really wasn't complicated to play. So I thought, well, then it can't be that complicated to GM. I knew that there were an awful lot of rules to read and stuff like that, but the GM didn't seem to be particularly using them just adjudicating even mm. I could tell that so it, I thought it can't be that hard and and there was a bunch of other people who came with me to that first session who really wanted to play more than we were allowed to do in our weekly war game session so it would be like I think probably the following Saturday or Sunday um, you know uh, stopped watching Tiz was went around each other's houses um, and it would have been the autumn because that club would have happened in September so we probably couldn't play outside and I think we just decided to play and I don't much like you with X One, I don't think, I don't think I had a game of D and D in front of me before I started running it. Hmm. I don't think so, and if I did, it was like the Dungeon Master's Guide and that alone, or possibly the Moldvay Red Book. But I think I got that later because this you couldn't just nip onto Amazon and have that stuff within forty eight hours either. This was stuff you would put on a list for Christmas or birthdays. So maybe twice a year you would get a decent piece of kit. So I don't think I had very much, but I stepped up because someone had to. <laughs> and I stepped up because I really thought that the GM was king and I kind of wanted to be leadership gene sort of popped out, really. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> someone's got a volunteer, so I'll do it. So and and that was what it took, and then and then people kept asking me to run more, and I think at one stage I was probably running three or four games a week, 
but but by games I don't mean like we get from a modern convention now I'm I'm talking about like on the bus on the way into oh, town yeah, yeah. which was a 20 minute ride you could play D&D there you could play D&D in the back of a car on the way to holidays you could play D&D in your lunch break and we often did yeah and without dice it was all D&D and that includes the times we spent playing Traveller Call of Cthulhu RuneQuest and Tons and Trolls it was still playing D&D yeah and, and really it was just like okay what do you want to do and then the players would say stuff and I would say whether it worked or not fast forward 35 years that's powered by the apocalypse so you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing new in gaming but it's, that, it's it, was, the... it was mostly a need no one else would do it and I would uh, and I suspect you were in a similar boat were you? Hi Baz, hi Gaz, it's Guy Milner here, off of GoPlay Leads and various other gaming stuff. Um, happy 50th pod birthday. Um, love the podcast, seems to have gone from strength to strength. Um, here's to another 50. I don't seem to have uh, managed to get around the table with you since I appeared on that podcast. I suppose I should stop pitching games like Melancholy Kaiju and then I might have a chance. But yeah, hopefully see you around the table at some point and uh, keep going with it. Cheers. I mean, that, that's, that sort of stuff makes me laugh where, you know, we've had these uh, wars over things like whether you need maps and miniatures and all the rest of it, but if you've not played D&D off your lap for 20 minutes on the bus on the way to school, and then uh, you know, when uh, you got there in the 15 minutes you had before a lesson started, and then at lunchtime if it wasn't raining, etc, etc, then you know, you don't you don't need Floorlands. Anyway, yeah, very similar. Um, I went from being kind of like uh, at the top end of glory when I was in primary school and doing really well in all my lessons and all the rest of it and getting awards and things like this, to be in the scum of the earth at secondary school because, you know, I was a SWAT and good at maths and did stuff because, mm. you know. So uh, I, I had a very weird time when I first got to secondary school, not understanding why the world had turned upside down. And all the things I've been told were great up until that point marked me out for a beating because I was uh, a bit of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I took solace in the back of the class with the other nerds uh, while all the sporty types were at the front roughhousing. Uh, and my opening gambit was, does anybody play D&D? Because <laughs> I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's my one place of safety. And it turned out that, you know, a good half a dozen other kids also were keen on this thing. Um, but nobody wanted to run a game. So it's like, much like yourself, it was kind of Hobson's choice. He's like, if you want to play D&D, you're going to have to run it, Gary. So um, there you are. I started running D&D for the kids at school. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, despite um, older brothers having passed stuff down, and I got into RuneQuest the same way, and that one of the lads I knew his... Older brother used to play it with his mates, and he passed the stuff down to his brother, and then he played it with us, and all that kind of stuff. When I tried to pass stuff down to my little brother or get him or his mates interested, none were. Mm. So it was it was secondary school when I got there, and it was just kind of really finding other people who were into this cool orc killing nonsense that other people couldn't understand what we were doing. Uh, and from there, did like, you have rule books and stuff? Then? Um, at that point, sort of yes. I had I can't remember which edition it was, but. Again, I was going to this hardware store in town in Blackburn that got in whatever was available, along with everything else you can think of in that store. You could buy virtually anything. If you wanted guns or hatchets or anything, it was all down there. Um, so there was a white covered with blue inked D&D book. Um, and I don't know what it was, but it didn't quite marry up with the X1 that I got. And I couldn't understand why the levels only went up to three or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I eventually got the expert rules but they didn't match up because the original D&D book I got wasn't basic it was obviously a previous version of some sort so it was all kind of cobbled together so I mean I know the OSR kids think they're doing it all themselves now but even then back in the day you kind of got bits and pieces that matched together and you had to get your WD-40 and duct tape out and uh, kind of make your own stuff up as you went 
fortunately, if you were the only guy running stuff, nobody else was buying it and telling you you were wrong. So you just kind of got to get away with it. But it's, yeah. uh, you know, being a perfectionist in these yeah, sort of you, things, it used to annoy me. Yeah, you had, uh, you would have had the Holmes D&D set then. Could well have been. Which was, uh, yeah, it's just before the Red Box, which is when a lot of people got into it. People still play that one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It only went up to level three, but then you know, characters never got that high anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. um, so I mean, thinking about it, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm reminiscing now. I think the very first thing I ever bought with my own money, which probably enabled me to run an awful lot of games and a lot of different games, actually, was the best of White Dwarf scenarios, Volume One. Oh, nice! And the and the best of White Dwarf articles, Volume One, and they were an excellent little double set I, I maintain to this day they're still fantastic because um, I got I got into I couldn't afford to get White Dwarf every month and the first one I saw was about issue 11 or something like that so you can like you know carbon date me by that if you like but um, the best of the White Dwarf scenarios was a collection of exactly that and it had uh, a few D&D scenarios in there some RuneQuest stuff Gamma World um, possibly Traveller I think Traveller this was pre-Call of Cthulhu so it didn't have any of that so, but there was I don't know half a dozen, maybe eight decent scenarios in there, all different. And I remember reading all of those and just using those as my examples. Really, I must have run the Halls of Tyson Thane by Albie Fiore about I don't know eight nine times, and I don't suppose we got further than about five or six rooms in because we always used to just start at the same place every time, like picking up a video game from a save game bit, yeah. and or, or, or sorry for just starting it from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and when we died or ran out of time, we didn't pick up from there. We ran it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it didn't get any quicker. The, no, it really didn't get any quicker, despite knowing what was going to happen. Uh, and then the best of White Dwarf articles, which was pretty arcane at the time because it had articles like Monster Mark, um, but it was um, it was about running stuff. So that was essentially like my player's handbook and dungeon master's guide as a bit of a weird combination but very British, and I think that probably put a bit of a steer on the kind of stuff that I liked. Tough day in the dungeon. Just too tired to put a stop to those pesky goblins. Lust monster taking your best chainmail. You need smart party healing potions. Comes in a variety of solve, ointment, and elixir for all your healing needs. One-stop shop, smart party healing potions. In association with Sexy Lemur Pharmaceuticals. At a store near you now. Hey folks, are you heading off to a sweet, sweet role-playing convention, but you've forgotten to book a hotel? Well, don't fret, you can stay at Murder Death Kill Hotel. For the low, low cost of your life, you can stay in the scariest, least secure, strangest smelling hotel in all of Sheffield. Now, not only is this a comfy sleep experience, where you can't lock the door from the inside, so you have to wedge a chair up against it, you're also part of the family now. You don't know their names or what they're saying, but you're their family now. But don't trust me. Try it out for yourself. For a limited time only, you can get our bonus offer of having your friends never let you forget this horrible experience, even though it's been years since it happened, at no extra cost. Murder Death Kill Hotel. Don't stay there. You will die. Looking to take somebody out in a crowded marketplace? Sword won't do it. Two-handed axe? too big. What you need is a smart party ship. Delicate, discreet, deadly. Smart party ships available at all good retailers and the dodgy ones too. In association with 
sexylemurcutlers.com. Blimey. And then um, I'm, I'm trying to think of any other key points that might happen along the way in my development, but it's just been a slow rolling exercise, I think. And there's there's all kinds of skills and, and bits and pieces you get together as you go along, don't you? I suppose the next pivotal moment beyond that was when we went to Gen Con for the first time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be the, the sort of the big middle period, wouldn't it? Because I think you, you have your eras of gaming. You have the stuff you do when you're at probably secondary school. So what, 11 to 16, 17, stuff like that. You're a teenager. You've got time and no money, yeah. for which role-playing games is great. Yeah. And mates on tap who are in exactly the same position. This is all pre-internet, so yeah. what else are you going to do? And and in in some ways, not quite pre-computer gaming, because that was another hobby too, but we're talking ZX Spectrums and waiting 20 minutes for your cassette tape to load. So that wasn't simple, accessible stuff, plug and play. So And it was all wrapped up in gaming. But then I suppose your next era would be university. So it was for me, because I had a little period of like discovering beer and girls. Yeah. And uh, and you know and your, your silly toys get put away a little bit, but never thrown out, just shelved. Clearly. And then you go to university, and it was going to university for me was a bit like walking into that war games club at eleven because I was still convinced I would open a door to a room where someone who really knew what they were doing would show me the way, yeah. and would I be accepted as good enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that coincided with stuff like going to conventions for the first time, which was another case of opening the door and trying to see if I was good enough to join in with the really big boys. Yeah, quite. <laughs> and it, it turned out to our surprise that yes, in most cases, with all of those things, but you never know, do you? <laughs> no. no. Yeah, the, but the it was of... really super cool to move from like your instant circle of friends to a much, much wider and uh, and we met at university, although we were a year, maybe one year, two years apart. Year so apart, we weren't think, like yeah. in the yeah. So we weren't exactly in the same tutorial. We weren't skipping the same tutorials to go and play role playing games. <laughs> no, we were skipping different tutorials to go and play role playing games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, to like you know, to talk to people with different accents to me, um, who had grown up doing similar things and just come to the same point via a different route, but still knew what Dragon Warriors was and what Golden Heroes was, and um, you know, and, and had been in a games workshop. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a really big deal for me to suddenly get really cosmopolitan with gaming and and spend your time trying to be cool with the most uncool people in the world by showing <laughs> off your collection and your chops and yeah, you know, yeah, let's play Space Master. Yeah, I know about Space Master. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the the younger of our two listeners probably doesn't realise this, but when we're talking about this yeah. kind of stuff and there's no internet, that actually makes a massive difference Cause, because there yeah. wasn't any internet or anything. You didn't even know there were other games. Until you'd been no. to a much bigger circle or especially something like Gen Con, there were literally you know dozens, hundreds of games that you didn't have any clue about until you went to a place like that and actually saw them. And those sort of places were the only place you could get them. You could perhaps get local shops to order something in, but if you didn't know it existed and it wasn't in Dungeon Magazine or Dragon Magazine or whatever, how on earth would you know? You know, there's like whole worlds out there. And in, in terms of getting in touch with people, unless you had someone's actual physical address to send them a letter or a phone number, I mean, how on earth would you communicate or network? These days, it's yeah. dead easy. You can just go on the internet and join the whatever, the community for D&D, and you'll find thousands of people who want to play D&D, and you do it online. But back then, like going to something like a big convention was just like a massive eye-opener. It's going like all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, 
there's thousands of people just like me. I thought there was about seven in my town, but mm. apparently, if you get the UK together, there's thousands of them, and they're all, and there's all these diverse games and different types of games, and like you say, people from different countries coming to it. It's a, a really mind blowing experience. I thought that first time. Yeah, there was um, I think there was something like a million people bought Redbox D and D, and and clearly not all one million went to the same conventions. But it didn't take very much to feel like you were part of a really big community. Um, but but that was still, like it is today, small enough to have like you know names in it. Because White Dwarf Magazine was our internet. And the letters page was where we had debates about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I still, we should do that on the internet now. If anybody wants to have a flame war, you should have to wait one month before <laughs> replying. Because I reckon that would probably take the sting out of the comments threads. It takes um, even longer, doesn't it? Because you can kind of read it and then you formulate a reply and send it. And then by the time they've got it, it's the following month before they publish it. So correct. it's like, you know, you could get <laughs> three, like three statements each over a year. <laughs> and, and that should be should enough, be. probably. <laughs> yeah. Hello, this is Paul. And this is Scott. From the good friends of Jackson Elias Podcast. And we just wanted to congratulate you on reaching 50 episodes. Today, in podcasting terms, you are men. 49 more episodes than many ever reach. But yeah, I, I read down the masthead of, of White Dwarf. And, and, uh, to this day, I could I could reel off 20 names of, of heroes of mine. Uh, heroes based entirely on the fact that they were in White Dwarf. It didn't take very much. <laughs> um, you know, other people had footballers. Um, but I wanted to meet um, Phil Masters, and I wanted to meet Marcus Rowland. Um, those were the guys that I admired more than your Pele's and your George Bests and stuff like that. Um, and people who wrote a really good scenario, or, or even someone who you know who was just relentless on the letters page, or or people who like Fraser Gray, who could just paint the most incredible miniatures ever when White Dwarf went colour. Yeah, and I could never compete with stuff like that. That that was just you know that was a real once a month. That was my community. Um, and your family don't know anything about this stuff. You can't convince your aunts and uncles to buy you stuff for birthdays and Christmas because it's not available in WH Smith. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Until Fighting Fantasy came along, you couldn't give them you couldn't give them like an Amazon wish list. You had to ask for a postal order that you could send to SDVM Games, <laughs> uh, which was what? <laughs> and my poor old mum was like, every year she must have been frantic when she saw my Christmas list because it, it simply did not involve in any way Mr. Freeze, the ice cream maker, which is what all the other kids got. <laughs> I, I remember many times asking my dad to write a check so I could order stuff out of White Dwarf or something. <laughs> and him just going, what do you want this crap for? Like why well, and like be and it made me not want the stuff. I had to sort of like work myself up to it just because I knew I'd get this interrogation about why I was wasting my spending money on yeah. this rubbish, and that was like my only method. I had to make my dad write a check so I could then post it off and get some stuff. Uh, he couldn't uh, understand it at all, but it's, yeah, like I say, it, there was no easy way of getting your hands on this stuff at all. No, I mean I was fairly close to London, so on a very occasional trips, um, forty minutes on the train from London. And that would be the place where Orcs Nest and Forbidden Planet and the Virgin Megastore were. And uh, that was a time when you actually could go and browse what felt to me like a hypermarket full of games. Um, and I would pick up all kinds of stuff. The collector gene hit quite quickly. So although it was difficult to get stuff, I got as much as I could and looked after it and kept it very pristine and certainly never tore out any character sheets or wrote in the back of the books or anything crazy like that. Um and I remember doing character sheets by hand because a photocopy was a was a fairly big mission. Yeah. 
that involved money and a long walk or a bike ride. So, you know, one of the reasons I never really got into RuneQuest is because the character sheets were really hard to do by hand. Yeah. It's just a fact. It's true. <laughs> it's really difficult. <laughs> you needed a dad with access to a photocopier or some carbon paper or something. Oh, yeah. That, that was like, that was gold. Yeah, if you could find one of those, that was amazing. Yeah. And fanzines too, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was uh, lots of DIY, lots of labour of love stuff, and, and and I remember at the time really not being at all tribal about stuff, wanting to play everything, and often at the same time, and it was simply, well, I don't I don't remember running many campaigns. It was much like you know today in some ways, just lots and lots of little things, a golden heroes game there or a game of Merc there. Um, someone might say, do you want to play Tunnels and Trolls? And I might be a bit sniffy because it was all comedy. But I'd have a go at Paranoia once. Hmm. And, you know, and then there was basically whatever came out, if somebody had it, we would give it a shot. Um, and it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good experience because thanks to Games Workshop, they did make stuff available. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, you know, my one and only place to go. You know, like my mother-in-law will only shop at Marks and Spencer, and I don't call her weird because there was a time when I spent ten years only shopping at Games Workshop. So, <laughs> fair yeah, and I spend a lot of time at Marks and Spencer these days as well. But um, yes, hi Baz and Gaz, Jules and Sue here. Congratulations for re- reaching your milestone episode. They say life begins at fifty, so in savage terms, you can now consider yourselves seasoned podcasters. Go on, give yourselves a Benny or two. Looking forward to the next fifty episodes. Hoping you're going to tell us what you really think of Earth Dawn. Now I best hand over to my better half. Hi guys. Anyone who knows me will know I don't usually listen to gaming podcasts, but when I do, it's a smart party. So congratulations and thanks for being the least irritating gaming podcast on the airways. They do still have airways, don't they, Joel? Don't know. Oh. Do they? <clears throat> um, so to to flick back to my uh, my Jane Con thing when we're a little bit older, I think. Oh yes. I think the, the enduring bits about it. There's that I think now uh, has helped shape me and I presume you and others as well, is that I remember going and playing a game of Feng Shui, for example, with someone, and I'd never even heard of it, and it's a game of Hong Kong action movies, and he just knew his stuff, and he knew the system, and it just really sang, and I was sat there like blown away, like, wow, I did not even know this stuff existed. I mean, just getting some tips, not directly from him, but just by the way he jammed the game, about this is how a game could run, and this is the sort of thing you can do. That was amazing, and those sort of experiences of going and playing with other people that you don't even know and gathering you know skills of player and gm and different ways of tackling things or you know all kinds of like just stuff you'd love to put in a book but a lot of it you can't really write down and say why you're a good gem for example you just it's just stuff you accumulated from playing with lots of different folk i think that's sort of like socializing yourself with other gamers outside of your little ecosystem makes a blinding difference to to all gamers who try it i think yeah, it does. And, uh, it, and as much as you learn good practices, you also get to see some poor practices, if we're being honest. True that. Um, and and that, that was a learning experience as well, because for a start, it helps build your confidence. Um, because, you know, to this day, I know that there are people who won't, who will feel nervous or anxious about stepping up to GM and cons, because, and I get where that comes from. They think they won't be good enough, or they might have people think they're silly or whatever, or they just get it wrong. There's loads of different reasons for it, and they're all valid, um, except you know that you can really overblow it in your own mind. Because believe you me, the standard of gaming that I saw at cons was just like we had at home, for good and for bad. Yeah, it isn't 
the Olympic Games of role playing at all, which I was really worried that it would be, and I would simply wouldn't be good enough to to get by. Um, and I think stuff like you know organised play probably made it look a bit unapproachable at times as well because you felt it all had to be quite official and stuff. But we always yeah. played around the periphery of that kind of stuff, to my memory. Yeah, and we played you know the pickup games and the slightly more obscure stuff. And it was just it was just guys and gals like you and me who'd who had a passion for a game, had a real Jones for it, had put together a scenario, a few pre-gens, and had just started to bark up a show right there. And you know, and if the players were up for it and everybody was in the right mood, we had some stunning games and stuff, sometimes run by games designers, more often not, and just run by fans yeah. who just loved their game and wanted to give it a shot. Some people we've stayed in touch with over the years who've become, you know, part friends, really, who we bump into three, four times a year. Some people we've never seen again, and I always wondered what happened to them because, you know, I always, from the off, made it my policy to shake hands and say thank you to any GM who ran a game for me or any player that played in a game I GM'd. And and there's some top-quality stuff out there. Uh, But equally, some none of it unattainable. It was all inspirational, but it was never stuff where you thought, I can't do that, that's just another level. It wasn't that at all. It was just little tips and techniques and cool games I'd never heard of and cool scenarios I'd never thought of um, and and just, you know, great experiences. Um, and you just learn so much. And, and, and that was that was massive for me. I was really broadened and deepened my knowledge of gaming over those years of university and conventions. Maglev doors slide open on first off, quick as a bullet shot into the heart of the city. It's raining again. The rain soaks the streets like Mother Nature herself trying to clean the city of its filth. But she can't. No one can. I gotta be quick. Everything you do leaves a trail of metadata here. But there's my guy on a street corner. Hands me my USB. Give me what I need. A cast hosted by two old guys, old and ugly enough to be my dad. One some kind of clueless jobber, the other an aging hacker. They do know their stuff, though, though I'm still not clear on what this Earth Dawn thing is. And no matter what, i got to keep listening, because I'm always after the answer to that eternal question. What would the smart party do? And then, uh, here we are now, if I can whip us forward. If we go through all the decades of our lives, Barry, we might be here for four hours or more. So, um, <laughs> we'll never reach episode 100. <laughs> <laughs> the next 50 episodes was going for a year at a time through our lives. Um, so, uh, so current current day then, or the the fully formed individuals that we are now with nothing left to learn. Ha ha. What? Uh, uh, we've actually been uh, we've been away this weekend, haven't we? Played some games. Well, yeah. So, yeah, unbelievably, we've both been busy playing role playing games. Who knew? So, you know, we don't just sit there and podcast about the nineties, ladies and gents. Oh no, it's uh, listen up, listeners. You're going to get something from the from the hot wave of springtime 2017 coming at you. So come on in, guys. So you, you, we've, uh, we, we also made the mistake of splitting the smart party. Yeah. So we you did. went to one place and I went to another, and we both come back not dead. I think so. We've survived the experience. Yeah. Well, I took Pete and GT with me to be on the safe side. You flew solo, so we were risking it a little, little bit, bit more. No, I had Dan. Oh, I had, Dan. I had, uh, oh, good. Yeah, smart party probationer. He's into his fifth year. We might give him a shout one day. But <laughs> he's uh, he's he's on probation, but he's doing much better as my wingman. Oh, good he's stuff. Good. Yeah, I was I was up at the uh, the Seven Hills convention, which is one of the conventions that takes place in Sheffield at the Garrison Hotel, an old army goal. So it's all made out of sandstone. It looks a little bit like a castle with turrets and stuff. Very nice venue, a cosy kind of like Yorkshire 
pub environment where the upstairs gets taken over. Uh, the original one is is and still is is Furnace, which happens in October. Uh, they had another one called Revelation, I believe, uh, a few months ago, which was all Apocalypse World stuff. Seven Hills is like the little little sister to, to Furnace when people are saying, we want more of this, this convention's ace. Uh, and there's also going to be another one called Shake On on the 13th and 14th of August, I think, which will be all uh, Savage World games in the same venue. But all really, really good stuff. You probably get anywhere between like 40 and 80 people turn up, depending on the day and which one of the conventions it is. But really good, and it's it's particularly notable because you have to fight to become a GM there, almost. There's just a rush of really good gems all want to put on great games. Uh, whereas some of the bigger conventions struggle to get enough games for all the players they've got here. It's like more of a, can we get enough players to, to satisfy the tide of gems coming your way? So I was in no fear there'd be plenty of good stuff to play. No Earth Done, which was slightly disappointing, but I could say that about most Amazing. conventions. I think I might have to bring it out myself. That's it's that back to if you don't jam it, nobody else does. I think so. Look out for that soon, kids. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant times. Good people there. Uh, I got to play some Cipher System Star Wars. All right, good friend Pete. Which Cipher System is one of them that's a little bit. It seems more complicated than it is, and I think if you do your own little character sheet and tweak the different uh, bits and pieces to have the right flavour, it's actually a really good con game. Uh, and Pete proved that quite happily. We had a, an escape through a meteor field with tie fighters chasing us and all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, all seemed to work really nicely. So that was good. Um, I also played some Pendragon, which was ace. Talking of the old 90s games again, I'll bring that one out. Yeah. But I finally got a chance to play it rather than have to run it. So that was good. Uh, I ran some 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. And I think I've even yeah, a- converted one of our guests, Guy Milner, who runs Go Play Leads. He was in that game. With a, with a sneer on his face, he says, I don't like Cthulhu, but I've signed up for your game anyway. <laughs> Which is always pleasing when a convention sure to boost your confidence and make you feel and your special. your answer was, neither do I, but we're playing it anyway. Yeah, that's it. I'll just make it up. It's fine. <laughs> no, so I, I think I've, I've almost converted him. I'm not sure. He, he certainly didn't hate it. So that was good. All the players got into it, and that's that's what the really good sign of a, uh, any game is when all your players can get involved as well. Uh, the following morning, around some Hell on Earth, Savage Worlds. Uh, and that again, little bit like a really mini Isle of Dread in that there's mm. I put loads of stuff on a map and let the players go at it and had a big uh, sort of like world changing event going in the background to push them if they didn't go looking hard enough to poke things with a stick. So that's one of the interesting things about running convention games. Actually, is sometimes you get people who will make their own fun, and sometimes you get players who kind of want to wait for the plot to turn up and tell them where to go next. Um, so. That's the subject of the podcast, I think, on how to structure your scenario or what to put in it to get people different types moving. And finally, uh, I played a Resident Evil style Assault on Precinct 13 mashup Savage Worlds game with zombies and basically big creatures from that computer game world, mm-hmm. which was good fun. Uh, Paul Lawrence ran that, and he's he's very much one for his his props and extra stuff. So he had little counters for all your grenades and every other little bit and piece you could throw them about and. Uh, little secret notes got passed as he discovered stuff and that sort of thing. So, yes, there you go. Five completely different games. All good fun. Wow. Lots of good players. Met some new people, met some old people. Got chatting with a few. Didn't speak to enough people, but by golly, it's good to get out and play some games. So, um, the uh, well, what I went to was a pub meet, really. It's, it's the inaugural convention of um, of the local group that I've mentioned before which still incredibly 
it's up to like 150 role players in my town. Well, are, the, are these the guys that <laughs> hang out in a pub and read a book to identify each other? And yes, yeah, exactly right. Well, so we decided to actually formalise it and go to a pub and play games. So pub meet for the day, the first one called Rise. I don't know why it was called Rise. Actually, I should have asked. But anyway, um, we didn't get the whole 150 out because it, we want to start small and it's the first one and see how it goes. But we had seven tables for one day, so three slots. Um, so a big four-hour slot to begin with, a middle slot of two, two and a half hours, and then an evening slot. Okay. And that simply went with the pub's opening time. So the first game was at 11.30, which was super casual for me because most you'd have been, well, nuts deep in your first game by 11.30, I would imagine, oh, yeah. and yeah. still trying to struggle through like your two litres of water and Red Bull to get <laughs> over the night before. So True. I had a leisurely breakfast and sauntered like the five miles to the con uh, to, to start running my first game. So first game session for me. Uh, oh, and I should say I went with my good friend Dan, a probationary smart party member, uh, and my son Danny, who at ten years old, it was his very first convention Ooh, outside of uh, Dragon Meat and stuff like that. So, yeah, first convention as as an attendee, as a, a kid playing his first games. So that was you know that was a big deal for me. So I set him down at the teenagers' table. So they have a special table for kids to play at, which is amazing. And I don't know why that doesn't happen more often. Yeah. Um, so you know a couple of guys stepped up to run two and a half hour sessions of D&D for kids from the age of 10 to 16 I suppose um, and God love them they put all the grown ups to shame because those kids showed up in costume they were on their feet they were making more noise than anybody else you could hear the quotes of the convention sort of coming over the over the air floating over your table about you know murder at the exhibition and uh I stab the brass wormling where it stands, and and I say never surrender. And it's like, oh God, it sounds like you know someone's quoting from um, uh, from from William Wallace films like Braveheart. It was brilliant. <laughs> so they were loving it. So you know, every every couple of hours, I nip over and see if Danny needs a drink or something to eat, and he basically ushers me away and says, "Go away, I'm, I'm having fun roasting a hobgoblin." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so he had a top time. Um, my first game was. Uh, going back to the early part of this podcast, I ran a scenario from White Dwarf number nine, uh, republished in Best of White Dwarf articles, uh, Best of White Dwarf scenarios, volume one. Uh, I ran The Lich Way by Albi Fiore using basic Moldvay red box D&D. And so for four hours, I was that 11-year-old again. Yeah. Uh, for playing that game with a bunch of blokes in, the, uh, in their 30s and 40s um, uh, and a woman who was her first ever role-playing experience. So that was a bit of a strange, weird time dilation effect where your first role-playing experience is in 2017 <laughs> of a game that was published in 1981. <laughs> so wow. good good luck to her. Um, <laughs> she had a good time. Uh, yeah, she made a pickpockets role successfully and um, and knew what it was to have four hit points and really bugger all else on the sheet to protect you <laughs> so that was great and uh and we, we we mapped rooms and we made poison saves and uh and chased zombies through halls so brilliant i really enjoyed that it was great got to a resolution um enjoyed that game very much so then a quick break and then i had the experience of running fate and uh 
both listeners, you heard it here first. I have finally made a fake game work. Wow. Finally. I don't believe you. After five years of basically overthinking it and <laughs> just not being able to understand how to adjudicate things like I punch him. <laughs> so <laughs> I can see how that was a barrier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh God almighty. I don't know what my issue is with Fate. It's still lingering, but I did a demo game of Fate uh, Fate Accelerated to make life easier for me. Um, and I ran it Wild West. And the way I did it was I got the board game Cult Express. Oh, yeah. Which is a really cool it's board quality. game. And ran that using Fate. So everyone's a bandit and they're robbing a train. And, and I've got some nice props from the board game, which is a three-dimensional train and little meeples with cowboys on them. And uh, and I ginned up some fate sheets that were like half filled in with like name and main aspect and trouble and a couple of stunts. Didn't take very long to do some approaches and basically said to everybody, this is your situation. What do you do? So really, really prep light. And I managed to sustain that for two hours of play. And the game just did that thing that it's supposed to, where it just writes itself mm. and people were compelling aspects and it did take a little bit of getting used to because I did have it was a demo game and I don't mind doing that, so I had to keep stopping and explaining some of the rules where it really doesn't seem to matter how skilled you are at certain things. It's not a there's never a binary outcome. It's not what happens when I do that. It's I do this and this is what I would like to have happen. So getting the players to put some authorship into it was kind of kind of crazy. But it actually worked. Wild West Fate really, really worked for me. And at the end of that two hours, we could have gone on for another two very, very easily, and the scenario would have absolutely written itself. So, I was I was just pleased that finally I got a really good run out of the game, and and the guys really enjoyed it too. That none of them had ever played Fate before, and they've all said to me that they would go back to it. And they've asked for for links and stuff like oh, that. Oh, cool! Um, so that was super cool. Uh, and then I played for the evening, so a nice big Saturday night slot. Um, my son stayed with me but managed to sort of fall asleep at that point so that was cool so you know daddy could have have a drink and play some role-playing games um and i got myself into a pathfinder game um i quite like pathfinder it's D and it's it's nice and classic stuff so i thought brilliant you know i don't get to play my favorite genre very often i think i think most of us gms don't do we you yeah. said you not played pendragon in donkey's years so so i thought i'd play some D and D. It wasn't my cup of tea. I, I didn't have a great game um, for lots and lots of different reasons, but it, it, it only lasted a couple of hours, and, and it was okay. I think I was after more because it was at the climax of the con. Right. I didn't quite get it, so fine. Um, had a drink, said goodbye to some people. My mate Dan was in the middle of a Delta Green game. He looked terrified in a good way. <laughs> um, so I kind of left him to it, looking all shaken and bloodless. Um, and was you know, and I was home for half past ten. Uh, a really, really, really good day. Um, enjoyed it massively, and incredible what you can do when someone bothers to step up and post some stuff on Facebook and see what wants to go on. It, it continually surprises me how easy it is to get this stuff together. Yeah. And it included a raffle and a buffet. So you know, for for my ten quid, I think it was for the day. I played three role playing games. Had a had a feast. Um, a couple of drinks, met 12 gamers I'd never encountered before who all live within five miles of me. And we've got more games set up for the future. So that was a win. Sounds awesome. 
Oi, oi, smart people, it's Zach Spax here. These last 50 episodes have been an A1 tip-top clubbing jam fair. Simply put, a sandwich of fun on polyhedral bread wrapped up in a dice bag like disco fudge. It doesn't get much better than that. Stay lucky! So, so there we go, mate. So that was a, that was a gamble through 35 years of gaming from first game to last game. So the big question is, what have we learned in the intervening years? We had a we had a stop in the middle to go to university and get a degree that we've singularly failed to use. So, <laughs> what what have we learned in all of our careers, then, mate? From that first game on the Isle of Dread to that last game, um, running around shooting zombies. Well, one of the main lessons I think is you've got to support each other. So, if you're the GM, you've kind of got to like look out for what your players are looking for and try and help them out with that a little bit. But uh, equally, you've got to remember as players, there's more of you than there are the GM. Uh, and quite often they put a lot of effort into this. They might be nervous about the game they're running for you. They certainly want to give you a good game for the most part. So um, definitely make sure you're trying to do the right by everybody else around the table. Because I think back in the good old days, there was a certain element of putting all the weight on the GM. Or it was easy to sort of criticise or call people out for doing things wrong and... We were younger and more foolish then and happily throw dice at people for bringing a paladin to the wrong game or something. But over the years, it's, you're just going to get a better game if you as a player or GM or whatever the role is that you take in whatever game is you're playing. Try and support the other people around the table. Listen to the sort of things they're trying to do. Uh, bring back and reincorporate little bits of stuff they brought into the game again later on. Uh, and just all try to work together to make it a better story rather than being adversarial as it can sometimes seem over a GM screen. Yeah, good. I I have a different take on it, which I kind of yeah. It's I, it's not. I'm disagreeing. It's, I look. I've come at it from a different perspective. I think everything you've said is true, mate. But one of the things that that has joined up my forty years of gaming, from my first sessions playing D and D out of that white dwarf to having played them again, like last week, is you get out of gaming what you put in, which is I. Th- I think where you're coming from like that. So the more you contribute, the more you will get out of a game. And that's absolutely the case. But I tell you what, someone also needs to step up and lead it. Mm. Because when you've got a bunch of people at a convention sitting around the table, and because we're all Brits, we tend tend to be a little bit tentative and a bit nervous and a bit over polite sometimes. And and life's too short for that. And gaming slots are definitely too short <laughs> for that. So So step up. But do you know what? Unfortunately, for good or real, people still look to the GM to be that person. So I don't ever be terrified of GMing because GMing is cool. But just have your first couple of minutes ready to go and lead by example. You know, make a splash, get involved, say how you want it to be, set the tone. Essentially, is what I'm saying because everything you've said is right, guys. But I guarantee, if the GM just sat back and said, "What do you do?" very little would happen for half an hour and eventually it might warm up and boil up but but someone's got to take charge um and i i I still think that's true in gaming and and it is everybody's responsibility to have fun but as long as somebody makes the first move all the other moves fall into place i think when it comes to planning games you really only need to have the first five minutes planned so (laughs) that's something i've learned um you know and and that that thing we were talking about about wanting to see behind the GM screen, and then when you did, you realised they only had two post-it notes and a D four. That's still true, <laughs> and, and sometimes those are the best games. So, 
you can prep too much. You can try and plan for every eventuality. I think if you've got a strong opening and you've got an eye on the direction you want to go, that'll get you a long way. And I think probably the only other thing I've learned is I love role playing with all my heart, but I love it so much I sometimes forget to speak to the real people around the table and make time to find out their names, say hi, have a drink afterwards, chat and find out a little bit about them because otherwise you could be 40 years later and you realise you spend all your time pretending to be an elf with your best mate and you've no idea what their middle name is and that's a terrible thing (laughs) or you can't remember what their wife's called but you know exactly what their retainers are called (laughs) (laughs) so make time for the real people um because it's 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 a great hobby to have something in common with but but you know it needs to be about more than just your spell lists yeah i think that's right and one of the things i i remember to do at least in one of my games at the weekend was ask people part way through is it going right for you do you want me to push the gas a little bit more whatever and that's part of that human connection i've spoke to people if all you do is turn up at the table and start rolling initiative, then it could be hard for someone, certainly if they're a little bit more anxious and not quite as forward as you, to, to actually say if they don't like it or they want something else or they're missing something or they want to get involved but don't know if they should. So those little bits of human connection help with the other bit, the main bit of what you're doing, but it can sometimes be a little bit awkward for people who are less confident than perhaps you or I, Buzz. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy! Still, good times, eh? And great to get some, some games under the belt. And I'm still not bored. Still, <laughs> still searching for that great game and... Really good to get some more some more hours under the belt. I, I, I could tell you feel the same. Yeah. We've had a little bit of a dry patch, I think, at the start of this year. So it's been, and we've got some online gaming going on, which we'll no doubt cover in future casts. And I've got a couple of one shots I've been playing in. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of plates being spun in gaming for us at the moment. So I think the next 50 episodes are probably in safe hands. Yeah, I would think so. Definitely. Yeah. So that's that's what the smart party been up to recently. So you know, thanks everybody, thanks so much again, everybody, for supporting us through the first fifty. Here's to the next fifty, and, and thanks to all of those crazy people who sent us such wonderful little audio celebration birthday cards. You're all crazy, but we love you. <laughs> um, we'll see you the next time when we discuss what would the smart party do. Yep, thanks again, everybody. I can just reiterate what Bas said. Thanks as well to everybody's organising conventions. Having both just been to one. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Dr. Mitch and Mr. Spearing, who just ran Seven Hills I went to, but anyone else who organises a convention or takes a game along to run or goes and plays and contributes. That's what keeps this hobby alive and gives us something to talk about. Thanks a lot, guys. Good job we didn't mention that raffle then, eh? Whew.